Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day and welcome to New Books in Music podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lee Nash. Today I'm joined by Tom Boniface Webb, co-author of the book I Was Britpop, which was recently published by Valley Press. The book is a comprehensive A to Z guide of the bands, songs, people and places that defined the Britpop era. Welcome, Tom. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so before we get into the uh, content of the book, um, I'd like to start with uh, a little background information on yourself. So your educational background and your career up to this point. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I'm originally from England uh, and I now live in uh, New Zealand. Um, moved here about three years ago. My background is all in um, film, really. I mean, I've been writing from a young age, but um, I started Writing, writing in film and then working in film production. I worked at the British Film Institute in London for a long time. Um, and then, uh, so that's what I've been doing here. So the writing stuff was all very much kind of in, in the background, really. Uh, Jenny, my co-author and I, we met through being in a band um, about 10 years ago. Uh, and then the, that's how we met, through the sort of joint shared love of music. We've both always had that love of music and that's something we both continue to this day. Um, and so just before I left, about um, sort of nearly three years ago now, she came up with the idea of wanting to write this book about Britpop. Um, it was something we were always talking about. It seemed like it was a kind of a relevant time um, to the 20th anniversary of the kind of, you know, the core years and the key scene coming up. Um, and so she sort of uh, came up with this this idea of actually wanting to put it into the A to Z format. Um I sort of jumped on board you know I was always interested in writing anyway and always been such a huge fan of music and particularly of the Britpop era that it just seemed like a really good way uh, a for us to sort of stay in touch and keep our relationship going when we're going to be 12,000 miles away Um, but also to um, you know bring a focus back on the scene that we had had been such a pivotal part of our sort of musical education and you know general education and sort of uh, coming of age stories when we were growing up, it just seemed like such a great, great idea. And then the more we got into it, um, the more it grew. And suddenly it became this sort of huge beast on this Google documents that we were writing. Um, we came up with sort of 500 plus entries about all of the key bands, um, all of the key, and then within that subsections of all their key albums, all their key singles, and everything else that sort of went alongside it. So key music venues, magazines, newspapers, um, all the kind of stuff that, you know, we loved, clothing, all that kind of stuff that we loved. Um, and it got to the point where we actually had to scale it down because we thought the book was just going to be, was just going to be too long. Um, uh, and that's sort of, yeah, that's, that was where the, the, the genesis of the idea came up to. Yeah, well, I think it's definitely uh, a prime time for a, a Britpop revival because, you know, uh, over the last uh, couple of years, uh, the 90s has faced this kind of uh, resurgence of interest, I think. And, uh, 
you know, um, there was a book uh, on Oasis is definitely maybe there was a documentary on Oasis. Yeah. And I think when the 20 year anniversary kind of kicked in, it was like, you know, people really wanted to look back at those times a little bit. So yeah, there's definitely a, a time and a place for this book. So, um, uh, well, you did mention anyway, I, w- I was going to ask about the, uh, the co-op for uh, Jenny, Natasha and yeah. how you guys met. So you guys met in a band. Yeah. So I, I was, I was playing in bands from about, you know, 16 years old, you know, Noel Gallagher taught me, um, through the Wonderwall on the radio that you didn't have to be, you know, Brian May to be able to play the guitar and you could just strum a few chords. And I picked up a guitar and, Played a few chords and formed a band and I was playing for, for years after that. It was a real kind of obsession, um, writing songs. And um, and then Jenny came on board in a band I was in called The Requiems uh, when we were in London in about 2006, 2007. And we played uh, together for a few years. She played keyboards and we played around London and, you know, things were good. Things were going well. But I think I think priorities in life changed. I got much more focused on wanting to be right. Um, and but you know we stayed in touch and we were best friends and we still are best friends and um, we were always talking about music always going to see bands always going to see and and why and, and always talking about how important Britpop was to us and in particular Oasis you were talking about Oasis mentioned their sort of resurgence before and I think it's they had such a huge impact on British music it's just undeniable how important they were one of the biggest bands of all time you know and uh and that was sort of part of it but you know then they dead they were just the sort of the you know at the top of the whole crowd you know um blur and undeniably a very important band to the to british music as well and it was that it was the relationship together you know it was Britpop in itself was kind of it feels like it was a, a kind of a, a reemergence of the 60s swinging 60s Beatles and Stones Carnaby Street scene itself so it was interesting that it crossed over into the mainstream in the way that it did and it's not surprising that we're looking back on it the sort of fond nostalgia in 20 years later now it's, it seems appropriate um I mean that was sort of the original idea and then it kind of coincided quite nicely there was a really fantastic Blur documentary back in 2009 called you know this run when they got back together and we went to see it in the cinema. We were just so excited again by that, by the music. We went to see them play in Hyde Park and it was just every single word to every single song. And it was kind of like, well, this is, you know, this is our, this is our childhood. And there are thousands and thousands of people in this field, all the same age as us who are all part of this, um, this crowd. And I, I don't know if that's going to be the same in 20 years time for the, for the kids that are around today. And the music that they have today, um, it doesn't feel like there's anything as big as as Britpop was to us. Um, and as such, and then it sort of became a thing, you know. And and you, you were talking about the Oasis documentary. I think you mean Supersonic, which came out last year, which was just it was a fantastic movie, which specifically focused on the first three years of Oasis's life together. And you realise how much they actually achieved as a group, and you know in such a short space of time. And that says, that says as much about the time and the place and the people as it does about, as it does about the band. Um, and then, I mean, it'd be easy to say that all those, all the other bands came in this sort of slipstream of Oasis and Blair, but it's, it's not true. You know, there was um, a lot of, a lot of drive for a musical scene. And I think it would have happened without, without those two. 
and that's and that and that is is happening again today. There's a, there's another one of the key reasons that we're you know we were in such a sort of so keen to get the book out in the way that it is is because there's a lot of these bands are reforming for their kind of 20th anniversaries, 20th anniversary of their, their key albums um, are being sort of re-released and repackaged. And this this week, for example, the Verbs Urban Hymns has been or a couple of weeks ago. The, the Verbs Urban Hymns album has been put out as a 20th anniversary edition, and you sort of re-listen to that and you go, "Wow, what a fantastic album that was!" You know, that's one of the sort of genre-defining albums as well. Um, but you've got all, all these other bands. So you've got Shed Seven and the Blue Tones and Sleeper and Dodgy and all these bands that you thought you'd never see again are all getting back together, um, reforming and playing gigs and, you know, even releasing new materials and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of, it feels like a, like a very exciting time if you're if you're someone of a certain age, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the kids are listening to this stuff as well. Because before Britpop, before I got into... Um, you know, before I got into Oasis, I got into Oasis through the Beatles. You know, my dad was playing the Beatles and and the Rolling Stones and, and all those bands and stuff. So, you know, I, I hope the same thing is happening today. You know, I did see a kid the other day wearing a Kurt Cobain T-shirt. Um, I, you know what I think? Um, well, you, you mentioned there about like this kind of um, the music of uh, uh, of that period. I mean, I'm I'm I was sort of in my late teens uh, during the Britpop era. So it meant a lot to me. And I think um, in the UK right now, I think the the, the only music really that's making um, a splash is, is grime music. Um, so, but it's not, it's not as mainstream. It's definitely not as big. I mean, there's, there's big artists in that scene, but it's, it's not as big as Britpop for sure. Um, but you know what, as well, um, Shed 7 did reform and I actually, I follow them on Twitter and apparently they're doing really well. They're doing better than they did first Jenny time. Jenny went to see them the other day in London and she met them afterwards and was talking to them about the book and, um, they, uh, Alan, the drummer has written a, uh, something about it, uh, about the book, which is really fantastic. It was really sweet of him. So they're obviously supporters of us as well, which is great because we're huge fans of theirs. I remember skiving off school. But 17 years old, don't tell my mum, please. Um, and going and queuing up outside Virgin Records to get Shed Seven to sign the CD that I'd bought that day. You know what I mean? That's how kind of important the music was to us at the time. So yeah, it's, it's really great to see these bands getting back together and 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 doing the things that they're doing. Um, <clears throat> and it's quite interesting you were talking about what you said about the grime thing because that's always been a, a tradition in in British music of it being very reactionary to the times. Um, people, the disadvantaged and disassociated youth wanting to scream at the you know, inadequacies that given to them in the life. The same, same thing happened in the 70s with the punk movement. Um, when the Sex Pistols started, they were just so angry at the world around them. And, you know, and I don't see any difference between the Sex Pistols or, or in like, you know, Public Enemy, for example, and on NWA who did the same thing. Years later, and exactly what you're saying now, the grand thing is it's a, a reactionary um, response to being dissatisfied. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think Oasis were uh, definitely a kind of working class reaction. But um, I was speaking to another author earlier this morning who's uh, who wrote a book called uh, 1997, the, the Future That Never Happened, which was published by um, Zed Books. And uh, there's a chapter on Oasis in there. And the, the actual front cover of the book has Noel Gallagher shaking Tony Blair's hand. Uh, which is when they when they met that time in the in the nineties and uh, that kind of was the 
the end of that era, I think, you know, that kind of ended any sense of rebellion that Britpop, or at least Oasis anyway, uh, could have. So as soon as it crosses over into the mainstream, it automatically becomes part of, you know, everyday culture and everyday life. And we, we write about uh, exactly what we were talking about. We write about Tony Blair um, in the book. And I think that's one one of the things that really interested me about doing this book was was giving it a cultural backdrop. You know, so it's not necessarily just um, an encyclopedia about a bunch of bands and when they release songs. I wanted to give it a cultural relevance. So I wanted to give it that kind of backdrop of why why they were doing it and all the other things that came along. And obviously the two huge things that both happened in 97 and brought about, sort of indirectly brought about the end of the Britpop era was Tony Blair coming to power and Princess Diana dying. And that was a huge thing. I mean, never un- over- underestimate the importance of how big um, Diana's death was to the British people. You know, it was just kind of the country went into the state of nat- national mourning um, because of one woman had died, but because of the reasons as well, I think, which, you know, they're still disputed, but it was it was felt like it was because of the press and the mainstream um, media and stuff like that. But with, with Blair, it was an interesting one because he very much brought um, himself to power by getting the youth vote on side, and he did that by championing First, Damon Orban, who he brought into the Commons to speak, and then yeah, later on with by inviting them all to come to Number Ten Downing Street to drink tea and and shake hands. And um, Damon Orban actually turned down his invitation to that, um, but Noel didn't. He went along. <laughs> Alan McGee went along, and they they, they chatted about stuff. And um, and Noel Gallagher famously stood on stage at the Brits and said that the only people doing anything for the youth in the country at that time were members of Oasis and Alan McGee and Tony Blair, you know, and that had been unprecedented. All they'd had beforehand was fans getting up and shouting about politicians and getting angry at politicians. And so there was this kind of feeling for a while that everything was okay, you know. But then the Labour government never sort of fulfilled and, you know, they never fulfilled on the promises that they sort of had on, you know, never fully realised. And uh, and music in, certainly went into a kind of um, a state of flux after Britpop <clears throat> finished. So, you know, our book finishes in um, April 98, which was when Pulp had released their album, This Is Hardcore, um, which we sort of considered to be the moment when it was this sort of big come down record, specifically told from Jarvis Cocker's point of view. When he was um, he was feeling this disassociation with life, taking too many drugs and drinking too much and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it was a come down record, but a, a raft of all these bands started to release records at that time. Oasis released in it wasn't until 2000, but it took them a while longer. They released um, Standing on the Shoulder of Giants, which was originally titled Where Did It All Go Wrong? You know, there's a great song on that record called Where Did It All Go Wrong? And um, you know, so it felt like everything was changing and everything was falling apart. And, and, and I, I don't know how you felt at the time, but being a teenager and a late teenager at that time, I was I was uh, 18 in, in uh, 99. Um, so just really wanting to get things going. And it just didn't feel like there was anything around I could get my teeth into. And that and it didn't until about 2001 when the, the strokes came along. The strokes kind of started everything again. It felt like they really kick-started everything off again and then we've got this kind of second wave of Britpop which um, is something Jenny and I are talking about at the moment actually which we're finding quite interesting because through the years of sort of 2001 
up to about 2005, I guess, there was this sort of second wave of Britpop. So you've got all these bands that like the Libertines and Razorlight, you know, and then um, later on the Arctic Monkeys and, you know, the Futureheads and all, all these really great um, you know, garage rock bands that, that sort of came in a sort of, I was, I was made a list the other day and I got about 50 of them, which is which is pretty good going. Seeing it's not far off from what we have in our Britpop book. So it kind of sees that there was this kind of second second wave thing but it was very much a homage to you know those few years before when um Britpop took hold of the took hold of Britain in a, in a way that we hadn't seen since the 60s you know mm. so um well this book uh seemed like a really kind of fun project to uh to research so uh you know how much time did you spend uh kind of um bringing this project together uh, clicking through old copies of the NME and listening to obscure b-sides <laughs> did it take uh I mean, obviously, in some respects, you've been researching it since it happened. But you know, when the when the idea came uh, came up, how long? Um, it came up. I think it was about it was two years, all said and done. Um, but that sort of took a while because, yeah, because as you say, this this a book like this requires a lot of research. We wanted it to be um, uh, accurate in the information because we're kind of music geeks as well so we wanted everyone to know what the third b-side on the second album from sleeper's third album was type thing um how many different formats each single was released on you know single vinyl and tape and that kind of thing um we wanted all that information in there and that took a long time um to get the accurate information together but most importantly we wanted it to be our own experiences and our own memories that were Put down on the page because that's where we thought the passion would come from and i, th- I think it did. i think it did and it, it, we wanted it to be a book for the fans you know we're we're fans of this of this era and we wanted it to the main reason that we always give for writing it is that it was the book that we would want to read um which hopefully i think is what most most writers do but we wanted it. Very yes, I think that's the most important. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And, and we wanted that sort of personal um, journey and personal experiences to come across. So, for example, you know, Jenny was lucky enough to go to Nebworth Park to see Oasis, which I think is kind of the era-defining show. It's, you know, the film. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of our that's kind of our Woodstock, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're very lucky to have, to have had that within our lifetime, and he was lucky enough to go. So she wrote. In the entirety of the entry about Nebworth, and it, I think that shows in her writing. This is kind of the way the passion came across as a feeling. You know, she was a ten-year-old girl from South Wales. You know, that sort of got on a bus one day and went to Nebworth to watch her favourite band, and it was this kind of magical experience that that happened. And and that was what we wanted to to come across in the writing. I think we did, but you know, we were getting on with our lives whilst we were um, whilst we were doing it, um, and then. The, the intention was always to put it out through self-publishing um, uh, because uh, we knew there'd be an audience for it and we wanted to get that kind of um, build of an audience once we put it out there. Um, spiral, obviously using social media these days, we've got a really fantastic Instagram following and uh, Twitter following, Facebook. Um, and because we knew that we had a, a group of people that were there sort of ready looking for this book, well, we hoped, we hoped we'd be able to do that. Um, 
we uh, we thought we put it out ourselves, and then and so we did that, and that obviously took a lot longer as well. So the first edition came out at the end of last year, um, November time, but oh, a year a year ago, um, and then sort of pretty much straight away set about trying to find good publishers, and and Valley Press were very interested immediately um, and impressed with what we've done. And small independent publishers means you have a good, really strong uh, working relationship with them. Um, and then it took another time. But by that time, obviously, there'd been another load of things that had happened in the year since we put the first um, edition out. So we had to go back and put in a load of stuff. And some of the most fantastic stuff came out through that. Like, for example, you know, the huge tragedies that have happened this year in Britain, the Grenfell Tower and um, the, the attacks at the, the gig in Manchester. Um, and people that came out in support of that um, like, for example, they had the, the thing in the central square in Manchester where they were having a minute silence uh, for the people that died in the terrorist attack. And suddenly one woman started singing Don't Look Back in Anger at the end of it. And mm. everyone just started joining in. And before we know it, you know, suddenly Liam Gallagher of all people is singing an a cappella version of Don't Look Back in Anger at, at, at Glastonbury. Um, and, and, you know, Chris Martin and Coldplay are playing it at the, uh, the benefit gig with Noel. And it's no, and, and Dola Back in Anger has suddenly become this huge modern day contemporary anthem that is um, against, you know, all the uh, tragedies that are occurring in, in Britain. And so that gives this even more of a sort of um, a zeitgeisty feel, you know, and everything happening again and happening for a reason. It, it shows how important First Oasis are to the general British consensus, but also to um, how Britpop is important to this as well. So yeah, that was the roundabout way of saying it took, it took us a long time to write it, but we wanted to get it right, you know, and um, and hopefully that our attention to detail has meant that it's um, as accurate as, as it can be. But it's a, it's a conversation, you know, it's a conversation. We want people to get in touch with us and, and they have been because, you know, people are fans and they, and share their own experiences and um and and take it from there because this is a you know this is a, a book for the people it was the always the intention always the plan so we're very open to people contacting us on social media and and telling us their thoughts yeah. and letting us know yeah well that kind of brings me to a, a question actually um because the, the book is a, a comprehensive a to z of Britpop, and so that now people are, are engaging uh with it has anybody come up and said oh my god you did not include this band um, yeah, I mean, that, well, that was one of the good things about ha getting a chance to do the second edition, um, is that we could add in, add in some updates, um, or reasons why we hadn't included certain things. There was an ongoing thing about Radiohead, why they weren't included. And, you know, we made our reasons up pretty early on that we didn't want to include Radiohead, despite the fact that they had come along and found their sort of initial, well, you know, their first in, initial success was pre-Britpop with the whole creep thing. But then the Benz came out and that was very much in the middle of it, of, of it all in 95. Um, and then, okay, Computer came out and was huge in 97, but they were just so kind of almost transcended and, and purposely pushed away from being involved in it and were big enough to exist um, in a silo without external influences that it, it felt like it wasn't appropriate to sort of tag them on to this book in a way 
Um, same thing was with, with Primal Scream, um, who signed to Creation Records, who's sort of the key, Alan McGee's key label that Oasis assigned to. Um, but it kind of felt, again, like they just had this huge chameleonic existence that meant that they almost sort of flitted between scenes and existed in this, you know, acid house scene before Britpop happened. And then they released a, a pure rock and roll, Rolling Stones type record. Um, I moved things on to this kind of electronic dirge after Britpop had happened and still existed in like that. So again, it felt like it kind of wasn't appropriate to put them on as much as I would have liked to have written about those bands, you know, I'd like to have included them in. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, there's always going to be things that you leave out um, because it's an, it's the whole point of a scene is it's, it's an arbitrary concept by, uh, generally by journalists and um, music industry folk who are the very people that the people in the bands are rebelling against. Um, and so sort of in, in creating a scene, it's, you're sort of automatically distancing yourselves from the band. So it's a, it has to be a very elastic concept. It's a very easy sort of term to chuck down Britpop. Um, and so we had to lay our borders one place and finish them in another. And we go into our reasons why we did that. And I think it makes sense. But again, you, you're not going to be able to please all the people all the time. And that's sort of just, you know, we've accepted that. That's fine. Um, one glaring omission from the first edition, and I hope people that have got it aren't too disappointed, but we left out the stereophonics for some reason. I can't even remember why, but then suddenly had this thing, and I was a huge fan of stereophonics when they first came out. And I, was, I remember buying their album, and it was, yeah, that first album was bang in the middle of it, the sort of you know, final throes of it, but you know, the, the scene and, and the years that we'd put down. And, and, um, and so I, you know, we, we came up with all these entries and, and wrote a bunch of things and put them in the second edition. And I think it's a great, a great reason to buy the new, the new edition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, the Stereophonics uh, first record was a really big deal for me. I mean, I thought it was... I, I, I grew up in a very small town as well. And uh, that, that album is about small town lives, you know. So uh, it really did. I, I think you made the right decision about Radiohead. They felt... They felt too international at that time. They were almost they were, they were just too too big almost. Um, but uh, I, one one band that I did I felt like you missed out, and I'm not trying to pick at this, but I, I actually had to do my own research in this was a band called Ultrasound, who oh, Ultrasound. were um, yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah who yeah. were like on the them. cover of uh, the Enemy. Yeah, they were on the yeah. yeah they were on the cover of the Enemy Melody Maker. They were in Select Magazine all the time, and I thought, well, why did they not include it? So I, I did did some research into it, and they they never they never even achieved uh, a top twenty hit. And so you know, I think they were a little bit later. Yeah, I went to their album. I bought their album when it came out, and I think that was about ninety nine. I think when their album actually came out. Shame because they were a great band, but I think they they were again ones that sort of fell. Um, uh, fell into the cusp of being sort of slightly too late, perhaps. And, you know, a lot of the bands achieved success at the time um, because of association to this pop thing. And firstly, A&R men were signing bands because um, they thought, oh, it's a pop band and just signing them, you know, willy-nilly after playing one gig to two and a half men in, you know, the Dublin Castle in Camden. And then there was, a, because there was an audience willing to go out and buy and spend money on records for these bands that they knew they could, get them into the charts easily enough that wasn't the same you know post 
post-98. And I think, yeah, ultrasound were fantastic, but um, it's a shame they didn't get into the top 20. They had, uh, their album was great. And they had a, a, a track on this, they had a second CD on the track on the album, which was one song for half an hour. And I remember they used to play that live and it was just mental. Um, but uh, that kind of showed, that kind of showed how music had changed and how everything changed. But then that happened in the same way before Britpop. Like, um, I remember Steve Lamack reading reading this interview with Steve Lamack years ago, and he said that um, the week that Kurt Cobain died, like the day that Kurt Cobain died, was the same week that Oasis got their first front cover on the enemy. So it was like a switch had gone off and everything had changed in one moment. And all of this grunge stuff that had sort of permeated into the mainstream, you know, across the Atlantic into Britain, was suddenly over and Britpop had started properly, you know, and Oasis was now the band that everybody was going to be listening to. And that's just how time time moves on, I guess. Well, that, yeah, that definitely happened to me. I mean, I was a grunge kid uh, from, you know, the age of like 12 to 14. And then um, I switched pretty much in 94, 95 and, uh, you know, never, never looked back. Well, I did. I was just going to sort of say very quickly, I, I think it's just a kind of, um, it's also a generational thing. It's also the kind of fact that, time moves on and I think it's quite a nice analogy to you I don't have any older siblings but friends of mine did and so it was always the idea that perhaps your older brother was listening to Nirvana and as much as you might like them you wanted to find your own thing and so if a new band comes along you know like Oasis you go that's mine I'm going to grab onto that and that provides that kind of sibling rivalry sort of thing you know it's the whole idea of generations changing and, and moving on as as, as people get older, you know? Um, yeah, I had an older sister who listened to, uh, you know, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. And so I would sneak into her room, grab her cassette tapes and, and uh, copy them and then sneak them back in. Um, but anyway, let's uh, let's move on to some of the actual content of the book because uh, one of the great things about this book is that uh, it can be read page to page or you can just dip in and out. Um, but one of the entries that intrigued me um, was the first entry under the letter B which was B-sides. So how, import, how important was the B-side in the era of Britpop? Well, that entry, firstly, that entry was about three times as long and I had to cut it right down. <laughs> we, we had to edit it right down because uh, it was just too long to put in the book and the book would have just been too long. But it's a very interesting point. Um, the whole idea of the B-sides began, you know, when they were making, when they were making vinyl, you know, back in the I guess it became a thing within rock music properly in the kind of 50s um, when rock and roll came along. And, you know, you're releasing a single on your A side. And so it made sense to put something else on, on the B side. When the Beatles came around in the 60s, they had, you know, such a wealth of material, plus the fact that they had the two greatest songwriters of all time in their midst. Um, the, John and Paul were always competing. So they thought, well, let's just do, do double A sides. So you had this idea of it being two kind of singles you release. I think the most famous version of that is Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, probably, which is also one of the most famous number two singles of all time. Um, so when it kind of like moved on and people started creating CDs in the kind of 70s and 80s, um, and, and then bands started popularly releasing CDs as sort of the format, um, they added in more B-sides because they had more material. And so you had, sometimes you had sort of four... And then even more than that, you have five um, songs that you could release. Um, 
this then obviously came to prominence with Noel Gallagher's songwriting because he, you know, he said himself in in, in contemporary times that um, he was he almost feels like he was too arrogant to at the time to put all of those fantastic songs on those early singles. So, like for example, when Some Might Say came out, and that was the first Oasis number one, and we chart that as the first Britpop number one single. Um, the B sides were just as strong as the A sides were. It was the idea being it was supposed to be another way for bands to release um, to release material. Um, he also used it, you know, Acquiesce, for example, is the third B side to the Some Might Say single, and that's just as strong a song in a lot of ways. You know, Talk Tonight is this kind of really moody, um, introspective ballad that he's he's put on there as track two. And and um and so they almost came like mini albums, if you like. You know, there was no competing song in the charts. And this kind of just grew from there. Bands sort of jumped on that bandwagon and started releasing more and more material. Um they would do like uh, do acoustic versions of famous songs or live versions of, of famous songs to sort of bolster out the material. And so, so by the late '90s, like Embrace, for example, um, sort of Britpop but post-Britpop band were, you know, releasing five or six songs on on just a single, a CD single that you could buy in the shops. And as is always the way with these sorts of things, it became became a backlash against it from the major record labels, who's who had these sort of pop acts couldn't compete with this wealth of um, material. Their acts could only really, you know, they normally only had one or two singles, you know, covering the whole um, experience. So the decision was made by the powers that be, and I wish I could sort of know exactly who those powers were, that a single could now only be released with three tracks on it. And I think that happened in about 98, 99. I remember it happening and being really disappointed because, you know, every time your favourite band released a new song, it was, it was oh, great, so there's going to be loads more, you know, B-sides to listen to. Um uh, but that's sort of, you know, that's the way it goes, I guess. And and that's still that's still the way now. I think it, music has changed so much in the modern day to the point where a lot of big bands don't release singles anymore. Or if they do, it's, you know, one of the key songs on the album just chucked on iTunes or um, Spotify a few weeks before the album comes out or, you know, the one that they play on the radio or on, on Jules Holland or whatever. Um but what, I think that's kind of changed, and, and that's fine. I, I'm fine with music evolving. And what it seems to be the way that the, the way that I was thinking about this the other day, and the way that bands seem to do things um, these days is that you get bonus materials. So you get deluxe editions of albums. So, you know, Noel Gallagher le- releases his solo album, and it's got the classic 11 tracks on it. And you can buy it for $9.99 on um, iTunes. And then a few weeks later, there'll be the deluxe edition that comes out. Um, for the for the real fans, and then that will have five or six extra bonus tracks on it. So you know you bolstered up to about sixteen, seventeen tracks in total. And I guess that's just that's the modern day equivalent of B sides, and, and re- it's a way of bands releasing extra materials. And you can understand why. Like I'm a huge fan of the album, and the album being a piece of artwork, something that really only sort of came in. With the Beatles really in the 60s and then became this huge thing in the 70s where bands like Led Zeppelin weren't and Pink Floyd wouldn't wouldn't even release singles you know they they weren't interested in that way of releasing music they were interested in releasing an idea of an album as a piece of artwork and what I find really fascinating these days is when you buy an album 
or listen, just even listen to an album. But some of the more traditional acts. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ryan Adams, who um, the alt country artist, and, and I still buy his stuff on on vinyl. And his albums are put together to be listened to on vinyl. You, you get it. You, know, you can understand it because by the time you flip over onto the second side, there's another really strong song to start side two. So you know he's put this collection of songs together to be listened to in a specific way. But sort of coming back full circle, the idea of the B-side, um, it, it started out as just, you know, the flip side to the A-side. And then it became this idea of just another way for bands to release albums. Um, and then uh, and then bands released those a compilation of their B-sides as a whole whole album released. Ocean Colour Scene did a fantastic one. Um, and then Oasis did obviously the master plan um, a few years later. Um, and that's kind of that's an, it's an interesting way, you know. It's just it's the way that sort of music evolves that is kind of so, so fascinating. Um, but the reason that we included that on there is because partly because it, it of its it's almost like a historical content these days you know it seems so logical to us but now you know if you talk to my younger sister who's um 17 um she'd have no idea you know, about going out to shops and buying cd singles and stuff it doesn't make any sense you know you can get everything online yeah yeah definitely um so uh, another uh another entry in the b section of the book was uh the battle of Britpop. so uh could you just tell us a little bit about this and uh, and what happened uh, during that time and how big of a splash it made? Oh, the day the world changed. Um, it had been Oasis and Barrett leading up to leading up to that time had both been huge bands that had released huge records. Um, Blur released Park Life in '94, which was their third record, and it was a huge hit. Um, and they won a bunch of Brit Awards at the um, 94 Brit Awards, 95. And then um, that same year, Oasis released Definitely Maybe, which also became a huge, huge record. They missed out on the Brit Awards in February 95. And um, uh, Blur actually said on stage about the best album, Brit Award, this award should have been shared with Oasis. And came to regret it a long time later because it kind of started this um, rivalry between the two bands, which just spiraled from there. Um, then shortly after that, Oasis released Some Might Say, which was the first album, uh, first song to be released in their second album. And because of the crest of the waves that they were riding, it went straight in at number one. And Blur hadn't had a number one up to that point. And neither had any of the other bands that were kind of their contemporaries or even the bands that had influenced them. So I'm talking about, you know, um, the Stone Roses and um, Happy Mondays and those kind of Mad Manchester bands. And so Oasis was sort of riding this crest, this huge thing. And it just felt like the next thing to happen would be the biggest thing they could possibly do. But Blur, at the same time, were also coming off the back of a huge, huge album and arguably the bigger band at the time. And so this kind of thing happened and, and the Gallagher brothers being, you know, as confrontational as they were and wanting to be difficult and antagonistic in the press. Um, but then Damon Orban and Blair ne never shying away from that kind of thing either. And it started to 
be this rivalry. Oasis set the date for Roll With It to be released, which would have been the second single from their second album um, in August. And um, Blur did the same thing. They were due to release the first single from what would be their fourth album, The Great Escape, um, a song called Country House. And the story goes, and uh, Damon Orban has confirmed this to date, he moved the release date um, so that it coincided with the release of Oasis's single. And then the media picked it up, and it just spiralled from there. I mean, you must remember what was happening at the time. This is when it became the thing in schoolyards when people were, who are you, Blair or Oasis? And it became this, this huge thing. And, and you kind of either bought you were one, one side or the other. Um, and I remember going to music stores, and I was, I was very much in the Oasis camp. Um, and uh, a friend of mine bought both. And he sort of thought, well, what's the point there? I might as well buy neither. This is a rivalry. You know, this is a competition. This is a battle, um, and it kind of—that's when it—that's it, when things crossed over into the mainstream. And by Sunday, Sunday the fourteenth of August, um, it, uh, everyone was watching and everyone was listening to the radio to see who was going to come out on top. And it was on the news. You know, it was on the main news in in the evening. And it's talking about this rivalry of these two bands. You know, these two bands that were just part of this world that we were coming into you know this had this had never happened before this had never been you know the Beatles and the Stones were good friends they'd never competed you know but competing in the charts those bands back in the 60s competed in the charts with other acts so like I mentioned before Strawberry Fields failing to get to number one it was Engelbert Humperdinck that got to number one that wasn't something the Beatles were trying to do this now back to the 90s was a battle between these two bands that we loved and the press just leapt on it and we loved it it just became this fantastic rivalry and um uh and blur won blur got to number one and uh sold some ridiculous amount of singles um they they released the single on two versions as well they released cd1 and cd2 which obviously did mean that fans could buy both and it would count as two copies I mean, you, you could buy a thousand copies if you wanted, but you, know, you could still call yourself a fan. I, well, I wanted to buy both. That's just how it worked. Whereas Roll With It only came out on the one. So they had a sort of slight advantage there. I'm not saying they did that on purpose because they always did that. But, um, you know, they did have that sort of slight advantage. Um, and so that, that, was this, that was this huge thing. And it was, um, and then on, on the Top of the Pops, because all the bands played Top of the Pops the following Thursday, um, they, the Gallagher Brothers, played but they is a kind of protest they swapped instruments so uh noel came onto the microphone and was pretending to sing the vocals and liam was who couldn't even play guitar at the time was miming guitar you know as this kind of thing and they they loved to they loved the rivalry and they loved to mock each other um but then it sort of it sort of carried on from there and it became this even bigger thing um after that because then the both of the bands released um their albums and great escape was good but it kind of did for the normal business what's the story morning glory oasis album just went on to become this huge huge ridiculous phenomenon it's one of i think it's like the third biggest selling british album of all time you know it just became this ridiculous thing and that was sort of partly because of oasis next single wonderwall and then the following single don't look back in anger which just became these, these huge things and they went on to sweep the board at the Brit Awards 
um, the next year with the same, winning the same amount. They won four awards. Um, and so it was it was interesting to see how those things developed. You could have said that Blur won the battle, but Oasis won the war. But then how, how did that turn out in the long run? They're all friends now, which is nice. I think the the thing about uh, the Battle of Britpop for me was that it was huge, but neither song was particularly brilliant. Like uh, Oasis's role with it um, had a, just an awful, awful video. And uh, the Country House video was directed by uh, Damien Hurst, who's a British artist. And uh, that was that was just really like campy and over the top. Um, and But yeah, neither song was really that strong, especially from those records. So Let's move on because um, I want to talk to you about the indexing that you used in the uh, you you use this uh, uh, sort of tier system. Um, uh, so you have three tiers within the book, and uh, tier one is the big five. So that's uh, Oasis and Blur, uh, Suede, Pulp, and Elastica. Um, so I think it's I think it's really easy to talk about those bands because they were so huge; they had such a massive impact. Um, but what bands from the tier two and the tier three uh, would you have liked to have pulled out and seen uh, just do yeah. better things and pull them into the tier one? Oh, it's it's a good it's a good point actually. It's interesting to talk about because obviously you kind of have your your own personal favourites of music of, of albums and bands, and then you have um, the stuff that you know is is more important to the subject you're writing about. I've got two examples, I guess. Um, from the second for the well, what we call the top tier, the Britpop bands, um, and Manson and the Manic Street Preachers were two of the bands that were really important to me when they came about. And uh, in, I think Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern was such an important record to me when I first heard it. it came out in '97, just blew my socks off, and it was just wow! Someone can create this this music and the way it's sort of presented and um, and it was big, it was number one. But then I always felt like somehow Manson kind of missed out on being bigger than they were. Like not many of my friends seemed to like them as much as I did. And um, I went to see them play live and it never sort of seemed to be as electric as it was on that record. And I don't know, I, I don't know why that kind of happened because it was something that was so kind of important to me. Um, other bands sort of didn't talk about them in the best way in the press and stuff. And I remember being really disappointed by that. But you know, funny, that's something that Jenny and I both agree on is how much we love Manson and how much we love that first album. But that's, I guess that's just the way it sort of goes with these things. You can't predict what's going to be big and what's what's not going to be big. Um, Manic Street Preachers, I mean, they very much did succeed these this huge band that, that, that we all know and love. And I became sort of obsessed with them, actually. But sort of slightly later, around sort of 2000, I became about really obsessed with them. And you know, listen to them and read all the stuff and, you know, this fantastic story that they have all about the Richie Edwards going missing, which is a horribly sad story. He's incredibly depressed guy that went missing and it's presumed that he killed himself, but his body was never found. So they never knew what actually happened to him. And that's still the truth to this day. And so I wrote a lot about, about the band. I wrote all about the first album and the second album and all about the singles. But then we made this decision through space issues we didn't want the book to be too long and too dense that we were only going to include the top 20 singles um for those those bands top 20 singles and albums for the second tier bands throughout the whole period um and that purely came down to a space thing 
but also because it shows the importance that certain bands had to the scene. Um, you know, a, a lot of the bottom bottom tier ones. I can't even remember who's in that. I mean, I think Garbage. I think are in the in the bottom tier. Um, they uh, it's about bands that were just around at the time and sort of tagged on to the scene and we think found a lot would have found success anyway would have done their own thing anyway um but found more success and prominence because of their association for the scene so it kind of made sense just to include their entries within within the sort of peak years where it just felt like anybody could release anything and and it would hit the top 20 and um you know that there was a lot of brilliant stuff out there, but there was also these sort of crazy stories about how this kind of came about. You know, there's a story that um, menswear um, formed just because of the, the singer turned up at Glastonbury and blagged his way into Glastonbury um, by saying he was in a band called menswear and then spent the rest of the day telling everybody about this band and, and there was no band. And he returned home with a record deal for a band that didn't yet exist to then have to put them together. I don't know if that's true. Um, I hope it is. <laughs> I, I hope so too. And in fact, actually, um, uh, there was an entry in uh, in your book uh, under the band uh, for the band Geneva, who I, I I know the name. I can't think of a song that they did, but um, yeah, it, you make a point in there about them uh, them being signed uh, only after maybe a few demos and a couple of uh, rehearsals. Uh, that just seemed to happen, and, and menswear are a perfect example. I, I heard, I, I didn't hear that story, but I heard they they only had about six songs when they went in to record their record, uh, and then the rest they had to kind of string it together. So um, I think that's definitely right. Um, with the uh, w- where you mentioned Manson, and now that you've mentioned them, I would have liked to have seen Manson in the in the tier one as well, actually, because uh, I really really enjoyed their second record. Actually, I thought that was a, an incredible record. Uh, I think the Manic Street Preachers. I think they transcended Britpop anyway, and I think they, I even beyond Tier One. My own personal um, uh, choices of that would have been Ash uh, and the Blue Tones. I would, I would have loved to have seen them become bigger bands. I mean, Ash's second record was uh, not Britpop at all. It was, it was almost like US garage rock. But I, I really love that record. Uh, the Blue Tones' uh, second record as well was a yeah, bit, bit darker. I think Asher, Asher are a nice example, because, but then they kind of they did their own thing anyway. I think they were they just started out being lumped in with the, the Britpop bands, and they so they were on the harder edge of it anyway. The guitars were always that bit louder. They were always more interested in in louder bands. But they did really well after Britpop existed anyway. Their third album um went to number one you know and that was um i think it was called free all angels in about 2002 or something um and uh so it sort of it, it was in a way it was a kind of mixed blessing for them being lumped in with Britpop because a lot of the bands lost any kind of um record deals or whatever by being associated so specifically with the Britpop band and i, I worry that the blue tones are one of those ones that were too associated with the scene and it meant they had incredible initial success but then went on to for that to kind of dwindle, and it's it's difficult. You don't know how these things can happen because I agree. I thought their second and their third album I thought was really great too. Um, but you can't predict these things. You, you you have your own, and that's why that's why it must be so difficult to be someone that chooses who who to sign and what records to put out because it's so subjective, you know. Um, but there were times within that kind of yeah. I think Geneva were were a good example because I think they were a good band. 
but they didn't sort of str- they didn't have to strive enough for it to mean that much to them when they kind of made it you know Whereas these other bands you hear about this kind of hunger and drive that they had to just play music to people so that when it finally happens it's this incredible thing you know it's, and it means a lot and they work so hard to maintain it um you know, they're a really good example of that because they sort of nearly lost, they nearly lost their record deal. And the first album was was a big album, but the second album did fail to hit the mark. And that was such a shame because it really felt like Modern Life is Rubbish was starting something. You know, we, ca- we count that as the first Britpop album, you know, and it felt like they were changing something. But then I guess maybe the audience wasn't ready. And because then the whole Park Life thing happened, you sort of find to see that in retrospect. But with someone like Manson, it was a shame to see them not be able to cling to their success, I guess. Yeah. Well, again, um, you know, with uh, uh, Paul Draper, who was the uh, singer of Manson, he's uh, released a solo record quite recently. And again, he's doing incredibly well. And he's on. He's going to go out on tour and he's going to play uh, Attack of the Grey Lantern all the way through. Um, and six as well. And he, he said he'll do six as well a bit later on, which is great. I mean, I don't know how he's going to do six live because the, that record was crazy. You know, it had, you know, middle eights within middle eights, and just all over the place. But I, I loved it. But it was. Um, let's just touch uh, quickly on the uh, the artwork because when I saw this book, uh, the artwork uh, gripped me straight away. I mean, it's such a brilliant illustration that uh, that's on the book there. Um, who did that, and you know, when did that come that from? That was great. I mean, we, we just, uh, that fell in our lap, basically. We uh, knew that we weren't going to have the money to be able to use photographs. Um, and that's because you have to pay for the rights and stuff like that. So we wanted to do, work, think of a way around it. That's, you know, firstly, that's why we chose to do a lot of those infographics and those band origin maps and the number one albums maps, which were done by a great guy called Aaron in London, who's a colleague of Jenny's. Um, but um, and because we wanted to make strength of what we could use at our disposal, you know. Um, but then the, the artwork on the cover was done by a guy called JP Cushion, who JP Cushion, who's uh, Korean, I think. I hope I haven't got that wrong. Um, who was this fantastic artist that just uh, Jenny got in touch with, um, and we talked about what kind of thing we wanted, and we went. We said it. We wanted it to be. You know, we to- we toyed with lots of different ideas. Actually, we had the idea of using, you know, um, just a, a, a brick, you know, uh, the Union Jack logo or like a burning Union Jack or a Knowles Union Jack guitar, that kind of stuff. But then sort of settled on the idea of it being the five faces. And he just came up with this really great illustration of those guys that we would just loved using it. We were just more than happy to use it. And now what's really nice is that it feels like that has become one of the key. It's really nice that you raised that point because it feels like now that's been one of the key things about the book that's kind of synonymous with it. You know, people look at that illustration, they'll, they'll think of the book, um, you know, and, and think of us and, and what, we've, what we've done. So it's, it's nice that that kind of thing has come full circle. And, you know, Valley Press got involved and the cover that Valley Press have put together is really great as well. It's really nice. It's, it's much nicer than the one that we, we put together initially, um, which, which is great as well, because I think it gives it its, its own nice individuality or that was kind of the the idea anyway oh yeah though it's fantastic so um we're just we're going to be coming to the end anyway of this uh this interview but i wanted to ask um why do you think that uh Britpop music is just not made anymore in 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 the uk why do you think it's uh, fizzled out um i don't think i don't think it has fizzled out i think 
it's still there and there are bands that I'm listening to now who I think owe very much a debt um, to to the Britpop thing. You know, I think the Arctic Monkeys, for example, are still sort of doing that. There's bands like Catfish and the Bottle Men. Um, you know, even someone as far as Everything Everything or uh, Two Dollar Cinema Club, you know, who I think are great bands, are sort of influenced by that music and by the scene. Um, but music moves on, you know, it, it kind of has to, to adapt, to survive. Um, and the whole idea of Spotify these days means there's such a wealth of stuff out there, people making stuff. It's kind of not done in the same way. Bands can't make the same money as they used to from album sales and from record sales and mostly done from live gigs. But um, meaning, which sort of is, is one thing, that's over on, on the left hand here, but on, on the right hand, um, how easy it is to record stuff these days and, and people could just do it at home on their laptop and then you can get it on Spotify yourself. It sounds as good as it would have done in the studio years ago. There's so much stuff on there. There's such a wealth of stuff. It's very difficult for people to um, pull things together into scenes the way that they used to. Plus, you know, the enemy doesn't arrive on my doorstep any longer. And so I don't know. I'm not told who to like any longer. I'm joking, of course. But, um, you know, journalism doesn't seem to sort of work the same way as it used to. But I was listening to this great band called Wolf Alice, um, who is, you know, female fronted band who who lay a huge debt to Elastica, you know, and it's and so it's I think it is there. I think it's happening. It's just it's not as obvious as it was um, back in the Britpop time. Um, and that's and that's because music works in a different way. The digital age has just has, has diversified everything so much that there are so many pockets these days. It's very if you tap into your little pocket and you can find it and you can link it and then you've got it and it's, it's theirs and it's yours and you can follow bands around still in the same way. But it's not as obvious to everybody else, I guess. It's harder to go out and find stuff. But it is there, you know, and that's that's exciting. And and they and people do lay a debt. You know, the Arctic Monkeys say that the first record that they bought was Be Here Now, you know, and um, the Oasis album. Um, and and that's, that's great to hear, you know. And they, I think they owe a debt as well. But... All of the Britpop stuff was itself retrospective in a lot of ways. You know, they were very, they wore their influences on their sleeve. So I guess it just follows in a long tradition of, of what's happening and what's moving on. I mean, I, I'd love, I can't wait to see the next Oasis come along and be this huge, awe-inspiring band, the way that we had it when we were younger. You know, that that really excited me. But, you know, that's these things go in cycles. We'll, we'll see what happens, what's around the corner. Yeah, well, you know, as short as short as it was, uh, I'm glad that you know it wasn't all for nothing, and that bands uh, are still tapping into that uh, that Britpop because uh, you know it did mean a lot. Um, so, uh, what's next for you? Are you uh, writing any other uh, books, or are you working on any other projects? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the plan, if it works out, is to do a series of these books. Um, yeah, which would be which would be cool, and the, the logical thing for us to do would be. Um, focus on each of those the five starting with the five bands um, getting their own individual book so we'd probably start with Oasis and do an A to Z of Oasis that follows their whole career rather than just the Britpop thing we'd recycle a lot of the stuff we've already got and put it into there it'd be much thinner than this one but um, would still be a sort of you know a must for any sort of um, 
fan of the band and then, and then sort of following a series of that to see how it works but as I was saying before there's also the idea of doing something about the second wave of Britpop so that kind of early 2000s Libertines you know um, sort of scene which I was very much part of because I was sort of that bit older so and living in London so it was easier to go and see the bands which felt like it was more of an international thing so I don't know you know you've got bands like The Killers and um, Interpol and all these sorts of people um, so I don't know quite how that's going to work at the moment, but we'll see. Watch this space, please. Yeah, well, we certainly will be. So they, they sound, whatever you're up to, that sounds fantastic. I really want to thank you, uh, Tom, for uh, coming on the podcast. It's been a really great talk. Thank you very much. And uh, your book is, uh, is really good, and I wish you lots of success with that. That's fab. Thank you so much. Thank you.